Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is episode 2769 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it is time for the Expert Council Q&A show of the week. And I've got a good lineup for you today. Here's who we're going to be hearing from and what about. How about choosing a stock, of, a steel stock, for your knife projects when you're moving past the knife kits phase. So you're going to get to the point where you're going to start shaping, cutting, and forming your own steel. And you want to kind of get out of the gate right, and you want to start out with ease of working capacity. And what do you pick? Well, Patrick Roman will talk about that. Uh, getting started as a new HF ham user, so moving up to the high-frequency stuff. Uh, a little bit on camping cots and more from the ever-versatile John Pugliano, who is more than just an investment advisor. Harvesting rainwater when you have an asphalt roof with Jeff Lawton. Choosing the right oil for your vehicle, Derek Aban Pietro. Six great tool gift options, or maybe even gifts for yourself, for under 50 bucks each. And most of them are even significantly less than that from Tim, the tool man cook. And I think almost all of these are going to end up in the T-SPAS catalog. You'll really like this segment. And then I want to talk a little bit, a little bit of a follow-up this week. We did two shows this week that had something to do with cryptocurrency. We did Odyssey, which is more about content creation and distribution using blockchain technology with crypto attached to it. But it wasn't really a show about crypto, but it kind of was. Then I had uh, the, the uh, Draith from Pirate Chain on, and we talked about that, which I think is one of the most exciting ideas and projects in cryptocurrency that there is. With that in mind, I, I wanted to kind of finish up today and talk to you about why I keep recommending cryptocurrency. And it's not because it goes up in price. It's not because you go buy cryptocurrency and hold on for dear life, and then all of a sudden you become wealthy. Now, that has happened for people. I think there is still opportunity in some of these cryptos that if you, you know go and buy a significant amount of it when it's really cheap, it might go up. I don't care, though. That's not why I hold crypto. That's not why I recommend crypto. It's not why I recommend that you get involved, that you teach yourself how to use it. Um, I have a completely different motivation, and it has mostly to do with freedom and liberty. That's what it really has to do with, and I want to talk about that a bit today. On that note, uh, it's going to be one of these episodes where I try to bookend it. So I try, I'm going to try to put a bookend in the front of it, and then on my ending segment will be the, the bookend on the other end. Because I want to start out with something that always happens when I talk about cryptocurrency, and that is the need for some people to explain 800 reasons why it can't possibly work, why it's a scam, and why they won't ever do anything with it. And I find this interesting, right? It's like a, a, a mental resistance and a feeling of a need to be on record that I oppose this thing that doesn't exist with most things. So, for instance, if I do a post or uh, make a comment about gardening, in, in one of the, uh, the message boards or on social media. I seldom get, I would never have a garden because, in response to it. Like, people that are interested in gardens, like, they tell you about why they like gardens or the problems they had or they comment on your thing or they ignore it. Cryptocurrency is one of these things that immediately creates this visceral reaction. And I'm going to tell you what creates this visceral reaction. A need and a desire to justify willful ignorance. Now, before I give you the quote, and if I've offended you, I want to explain something. 
If you just don't want to be involved with cryptocurrency, I am not talking about you. I am talking about the person that attempts to sound informed about the issue who isn't, but must tell you all the reasons why cryptocurrency is a bad idea when no one asks them. I'm not talking about, hey, what do you think of cryptocurrency? I'm saying, hey, check this thing out over here. This is kind of cool. You might want to look into it. And then this person gives you this soliloquy, right? And it is willful ignorance. And it led me to look for a quote on willful ignorance. And I found an author named Marty Rubin, who's the author of The Boiling Frog Syndrome. And I've heard of this guy before, but I looked up some of his quotes. And you're going to hear quite a few quotes from Mr. Rubin. This dude has, the one I've already picked out for Monday, I want to tell you what it is today. But I'm not letting myself, because I don't want to ruin it for Monday. It's that good. But here's what he said about willful ignorance. The real plague is willful ignorance, and education can't cure that. Now, I don't think this just applies to cryptocurrency. If I did, I would not have brought it up today. My quote of the days I like to maybe apply to something we're going to talk about, but I like them to be much more broad, or they're not great quotes. Great quotes are very broad in how they apply to the world. I'm sure that when Mr. Rubin came up with this concept or this quote, he was not speaking about cryptocurrency. I think it's old enough that it was probably before we knew what a cryptocurrency would be. Nobody ever even bought one yet. (sighs) I have always felt this to be true. Willful ignorance being the real problem. Because when we talk about certain things, we say that there's a difference between ignorance and stupidity. And the, the, the difference is that ignorance can be cured. Ignorance can be cured. And that's, that's, a, that's a valid point, but it's one dimension of the situation. So if the reason that you are ignorant to something is you just don't know, and you are open to it, indeed, ignorance can be cured. I might not know exactly how the engines of a Space Dragon rocket from Elon Musk's SpaceX work. right? I don't really need to know. But if I wished to know, I could understand. I could choose to educate myself, and I could understand. If I don't believe that they work, I don't need a fundamental deep understanding. All I need to do is watch it go up. Oh, it worked. So it works. I, and I understand the basic principles here, you know. Action, reaction, thrust, and, you know, it, it's not that hard to, to grasp. If I'm a conspiracy theorist and I spe- think the space program is fake... Okay. Space program is fake. All these things you see, they don't happen. We have never been to the moon, blah, 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 all that kind of... And there are people that believe this. You cannot cure that level of ignorance because the ignorance is willful. Because I have made this decision, because I have chosen this, this viewpoint of life, I will defend my ignorance to the death. I do not wish to be educated because I don't believe it. Therefore, whatever you say is irrelevant no matter how accurate you think that it is. And that is a plague. And it, it, again, it's not just cryptocurrency. It applies to so many things. How about this whole shit with mask tardism? Recently I said masks do not work on a, on a giant scale. It, using them for mass masking, it doesn't work. There's been a dozen studies since 1947 that conclusively show this doesn't work. And somebody commented on the blog and said, hey, who are these studies? Okay, well, first of all, I don't mean to be a dick to the guy that asked, but, I mean, it's amazing to me people will do that. Like, why don't you Google it and see if you can find it, right? Like, But the, but the justification was because I want to explain this to people. Basically, this person believed it, right? But they won't believe it unless they see a study. And then somebody posted this great link, and it had the consolidation of all the studies. 
And all the studies that say this doesn't work that actually tested the whole thing, and all the ones that claim that it probably does work because they tested a little piece of it alone. It was all in place. And he said, thanks, that's exactly what I was looking for. And I, I added to that comment chain, and I said, and you know what? The people you're talking about, they still won't believe it. You can send it to them, and they still won't believe it because the ignorance is willful. The ignorance around climate change, right? Okay, here's weather patterns, here's all the history of the planet, here's the temperature going up, here's the temperature going down. There were no Humvees on the road back when this was going on during the Pleistocene, right? Like, human beings actually impact the planet and do affect climate, and when you ask scientists, they all agree that that's the case. That doesn't mean that they all agree that it's because CO2, that there's hundreds, if not thousands of ways the humans impact climate for bad and for good at an individual level, like desertification and, and, and the things that we do with mining and all. Like, all these things combined, it's not this simple on-off switch. If we didn't have CO2, it'd be great, because that's the air you exhale, and plants need it to freaking live, right? Like, there's so much that shows that this whole line of thinking is absolutely insane. But some of you right now, you are absolutely convinced that is not true because your ignorance is willful because you have chosen to believe something. Because I'm going to tell you that if you actually examine that issue with an open mind, you may still believe, hey, excess CO2 emissions play some role in climate change. You might still believe that. And I might actually say, you, I don't agree, but you might be right. I'm open to that. But you will come to a, a very quick understanding that if it does anything, it is the most minute of the impacts on the damage to the environment that we have. It is, it is like worrying about a superficial wound that a person has that's seeping blood off of their left arm when their right arm has been amputated slightly above the elbow and the brachial artery is spurting blood. What would you do first? Put some comfrey salve on the left arm or clamp off the brachial artery before the patient dies? Well, you would clamp off the brachial artery. You can understand that, right? When it comes to environmentalism, there's so many things that everybody would agree on. But we've created this division. We've created a long belief. That's why I call it a cult. And then once, and I'm going to tell you something to make you feel a little better if you're on one side of the cult. There's an anti-cult that everything environmental is a lie. Windmills kill too many birds to be viable. That all the windmills will have to be buried in a landfill in the next 10 years. Like, because like 1% of windmills were built in a stupid way and then they've been decommissioned and they bury them. So that applies to all. Like, there is a right side in this political dichotomy, which is retarded. There should not be a right and left side to science. Okay? But there is a right side that is willfully ignorant of the environmental impacts of all of these things combined and believe we can just keep going on the way that we are forever. And, and those two sides are equally willfully ignorant. And I can go through every major problem humanity has. And in the words of Bill Mullis, I can show you that while the problems are increasingly complex, the solutions are embarrassingly simple. And when you say, if that's the case, if that's the case, Jack, if the solutions to these huge problems are so embarrassingly simple, why can we not get them done? And I will give you two words as an answer, and I defy you to prove it wrong, and they are willful ignorance. And in so many places, people remain willfully ignorant because the truth is uncomfortable. And if one has based one's life on a belief, if one has bought in wholesale 
The willful ignorance is in line with the concepts from the movie The Matrix where the person will kill you in order to remain plugged in. All right. On to better things as we go into our first expert counsel answer of the day. Patrick Rohrman of MT Knives on choosing a stock steel for your first you know, full construction knife projects where you move behind the kit knife. Hey guys, this is Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Davis. His question says, what stock steel should a person new to knife making start with? Details, I'm leaving the knife kit phase and want to get into cutting and shaping my own knives. I want something easy to shape with a file and can be given a patina. Looking up knife steels gave me a wall of numbers that mean nothing to me. Thanks, Davis. Davis, thank you for your question. Um, <clears throat> I'll try to help you out the best I can. You've got your high carbon steels and you got your stainless steels. If you're wanting to put a patina on it, you're going to be looking at your high carbon steels and the good thing about some of these is they're relatively inexpensive and fairly easy to heat treat on your own. The first thought that comes to the top of my mind is something like 01 tool steel or uh, 1095. The uh, Both of these steels will be easy, fairly easy to work with and easy to heat treat. If you uh, are thinking about making a larger blade, something like a bushcraft blade or survival blade, you might look at 5160, which is a little bit tougher of a steel for uh, larger blades or swords, stuff like that. So um, there you go. That's uh, the short and sweet. When it gets when it comes down to the steels, the different. The different options are almost endless. Uh, you've got some air hardened steels. You've got, um, you know, your high carbon steels, your stainless steel. Then you've got um, your powder metallurgy steels like H XHP, which is what I use. Um, so, and with any type of steel, you're going to get different people and their opinions of what's better, but. It's kind of hard to go wrong with a simple high carbon steel that's fairly inexpensive, easy to work with, and uh, great for you to start out messing with. So thanks for the questions. If you have any more, please feel free to send them in. Once again, this has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Have a great day. Okay, great stuff from Patrick as always. Next up, let's hear from John Pugliano, the ever-versatile John Pugliano, who knows about a lot more than just investing and investment management. Knows about things like ham radio and camping, and he's going to talk about a few of those things right here. John, take it away. Hey, TSP, in this segment, I'm going to answer a number of ham radio questions. If time permits, I'll also be answering a question about camping cots. Before I get started, I do want to put in a plug for the upcoming TSP workshop, as part of one of the presentations and for demonstration purposes, I'm going to have a field day ham radio station set up. 
And for you ham radio operators that won't be attending the workshop, this is a great opportunity for you to make a QSO with Nine Mile Farm. So keep your eye on the TSP social media outlets, and we'll get you more details about when we're going to be on the air and what frequencies. Now, as far as our first question, I receive a lot of questions about what kind of radios I have, and particularly about my QRP radio. In ham radio, QRP operation generally refers to using a high-frequency radio that has 5 or less watts. Some people take that up to 10 watts. The bottom line on QRP radios is that they're a whole lot of fun because these radios are extremely small and you can take them out when you're hiking or camping or if you need to have a very small radio for emergency communications. The big caveat to this is that they work best with Morse code. I won't get into all that right now as to why, but you need to know that voice communications on high frequency at 10 watts or less doesn't give you a lot of power to propagate your voice signal. And so if you're using a microphone as opposed to a Morse code key, then it could be really challenging to get your signal out. And so if you're a new ham radio operator or you're inexperienced with radio broadcasting and antenna techniques, then you probably shouldn't start with a QRP radio because you could get really frustrated. And so right now, I'm not going to recommend any particular QRP radio. Do some research on them. You can get kits that you can put together for maybe $50 or less, or you can go all the way up to the top-of-the-line bells and whistles radios that are QRP that sell for you know $2,000, everything in between. But what I would recommend first to a new high-frequency amateur radio operator is to buy a radio that's designed for mobile operation that gives you a full 100 watts. That way you can use that radio when you're mobile, in your car, or in your truck. You can also use that radio in your house as long as you have a 12-volt DC power supply. These radios are still very small. They're not as small as the QRP radios, but they're very small. You can take them on hikes and different types of portable operation as long as you bring along a very small, very lightweight lithium battery. Now, if you're going hiking and you're going to be bringing an ultra-small, ultra-lightweight lithium battery along with you, you're probably not going to be operating at a full 100 watts, or at least not for any length of time, because that would be too much of a drain on the amperage of your battery. But that's okay, because 100-watt radios don't force you to only operate on 100 watts. You can turn them down. You can turn it down to 75 watts or 50 watts or only 5 watts. And so that's the beauty of having a fully functioning high-frequency radio that puts out a maximum of 100 watts. You can turn it down to lower levels. And so for your first high-frequency radio, I would really recommend you look at a product that I own. It's made by Yesu. It's the FT891. It's a mobile radio. It's designed to go in a car or a truck. But like I say, you can use it as a base station or even as a QRP radio. Check it out. Look up the dimensions. It really is a lot of power in a very small package. I think right now for an entry-level radio that costs around probably $600, that Yesu FT891 gives you the most bang for your buck. Now, if you're looking for more of a base station or a tabletop radio, and you want something that has more bells and whistles, and in particular, you want something with a really up-to-date touchscreen user interface, Then I'd recommend another radio that I own, which is made by ICOM, and it's the IC7300. I would say that right now this is really the best mid-level radio that's out there, and 
by mid-level, I'm talking a price range of somewhere around $1,000. I can't say enough good things about it, and this is the kind of radio, too, that even though it's designed to be in your ham shack, it is small enough and portable enough where you can take it out for field day operation, and in fact, that'll be the primary radio that we use down at the TSP workshop. Now, our next question comes from John in Virginia. John wants to know about digital modes that are being used for emergency communication. I'll tell you, John, there are literally dozens of popular digital modes, but if you look at the full spectrum, there's probably more than a 100. And as far as the use, it can be very regionalized. The thing you have to remember about ham radio is that, you know, if you look at the real name of, of what it is, it's called amateur radio. And although there's a lot of professional organizations and associations involved with amateur radio, including governmental organizations, it's still ultimately run by hundreds of thousands of amateurs. And when you're dealing with that many individuals, it's like herding cats. So it's really hard to come up with firm, rigid standards because so many people are experimenting with so many different technologies and these methods and techniques and modes are using everything from the latest off-the-shelf technology as well as going back and using old traditional historic methods that are more than 100 years old. And so a good analogy when you're thinking about ham radio is that it's more like a spontaneous jazz band than a well-disciplined concert orchestra. I mean, there's a lot of things going on, and it all comes out beautiful, but the outcome has less to do with standardization and more with improvising. So having said that, as far as digital modes, it really all comes down to what your local emergency group is using. And that could be organizations like local CERT teams or on a national level, ARIES, RACES, MARS, Homeland Security, Red Cross. Each organization really has their own procedures. And for those that aren't familiar with digital modes, it can be everything from digitized voice communication like you would use in Fusion, D-Star, or digital mobile radio, or it can be data that's modulated and frequency shifted in things like PSK31 and RIDI and other forms of packet radio. And if you're not familiar with that, I mean, think of a fax machine. That's a pretty good analogy to what we're talking about when we get into the digital modes on ham radio. And so the bottom line for using digital modes in emergency communication is that you can pack an incredible amount of data and send it wirelessly. And this could be information about emergency supplies that are needed or just any type of data that's needed to be rapidly communicated during an emergency situation. Now, our next question comes from Chris. Chris wants to know what type of ham radio he can use to listen to the local police and fire stations, um, you know, because of pro- the protesters and all the different things going on, a lot of his local listening has changed to other frequencies and, and likely is being encoded or truncated somehow. Well, Chris, I don't know about in your particular area, but here's what I'd recommend. Um, first off, ham radio equipment isn't going to help you with that. It's not designed to operate on those frequencies. What I'd direct you to is a device called an RTL-SDR. That's RTL-SDR. Google that, and you'll find that it's a small device that you can hook an antenna up to and then plug it into the USB port of your computer, and by downloading the right software, it'll turn your computer into a software-defined radio. Now, it's really a slick device. They sell for about $25, and if you have the right software, you can listen in on all types of radio spectrums. Everything from marine radio to aircraft radio, local municipal channels, possibly your police and fire departments. 
It's really a fascinating little device, and it has more to do with getting the right software to do the things that you want. And there's a lot of hackers that have created open-source software that will allow you to listen in to all types of frequencies. But you'll really have to research that one on your own. Okay, I'm running out of time, but let me get in a quick answer to Jake's question. Jake is asking about using a cot for tent camping to get up off the ground. Jake, I would highly, highly recommend that you use a military cot. And not just a military-type cot, but the actual military surplus cot. You can still buy them new, and then, of course, you can buy them as used surplus. I've used these in the military when I was on extended deployments. I've used them in civilian camping. And there was even a time in my life when I was a poor college student when one of these cots was my primary bed for two years. So they can be made very comfortable. You want to supplement them with putting down a base layer of a quilt or a sleeping pad or maybe even an air mattress. But the military cots are designed with a very heavy-duty aluminum frame and an extremely tight and taut nylon fabric that's designed to hold 330 pounds. So this is a rugged cot. It's not something you're going to tote along on a backpacking trip. But if you're tent camping out of the back of your car or your truck, I would highly recommend that you get one. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Stunning Podcast. All right, on that one, since I literally know absolutely nothing about ham radio, really, other than basically how to use it if it's already been set up, I have nothing to add. I do have something to add on the, the cot. I completely agree with the assessment that the best overall option is an actual U.S. mil-spec army cot, the one that the soldier sleeps on. Like John, I have a lot of experience with these things, and everything I've ever tried other than them fails in comparison to longevity, standing up and holding up. One thing you need about to understand about soldiers and Marines, we break shit. That's what we do. We break shit, like, and we break shit when we're supposed to, and we break shit when we're not supposed to. We break stuff. That's, like, guaranteed. Having been a mechanic in the Army, I used to love being a mechanic after three years of Army service and being a mechanic in the Army with engineers and soldiers breaking stuff. I didn't want to do it anymore, okay? We break stuff. I have never seen a Army caught break. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying I've never seen it. I never slept on one for two years. I did sleep on one for 188 consecutive days during a deployment to Honduras, and I never felt uncomfortable. Um, they're incredibly durable. Great. My, my, my thing to add is, if you've never used one before, you can't possibly understand when he says very tight what he means. They are very, and this is what makes them comfortable and it's what makes them last. That, that canvas, that nylon that you're laying on is taunt like a drum. The problem is, it makes it hard to put it together. The way these things fold up, when they open up, it's real simple. And there's two metal bars. And these metal bars slide through both ends, and then they go over little bumps, and they lock in. And that holds the canvas tight, and it locks the frame solid. Putting the first one in is easy. Anybody can do it. An eight-year-old child could do it with no effort. When you put the second one in, Locking the first side in is relatively easy. Decent hand strength, dexterity, pops right on. The second part, where we're actually pulling it tight, I've never met anybody, except for maybe a really old one that's been kind of worn out, who can, in general, like consistently just grab it and pull it on. It requires kind of a lever 
tool to get this done. Now, when you're in the military and there's you know hundreds of them to be set up, there's always an extra one or two. So all you take is one of those bars and you use it and you stick it down in there against the leg and you pull it and it pops right on. Okay? That's fine. Unless you get to the last cot and there is no spares. And then getting that on there, you need some sort of strong lever. The best thing to keep with it, and this to be a good tool to have in your gear anyway for like this type of camping, because there's so much it would do for you, is a decent crowbar. And the reason I say that is if you try to improvise something, those that, that aluminum frame is very, very rugged, and those bars will do that just fine as a lever. I've tried like, oh shit, we don't have one. Five-eighths rebar, and it bent it. It did eventually work, but it was not reliable. So I would add like a Stanley Fat Max pry bar to your gear set. There's so much value that thing brings to you. I mean, with the hook end, you can use it for removing stuff from a fire or whatever. But something, and before you like go somewhere with this cot, make damn sure you have whatever you need to like. Go ahead and set it up in advance. Don't make the first time you set it up when you're, you're camping because I don't think most people are prepared for how physically demanding that can be. Now, I know there's some guy out there with gargantuan hamburger hands. That, I do it all the time. Okay, great for you, dude. I'm telling you, everybody else, have a good pry bar, and a good pry bar is a great tool anyway. With that, let's go on to our next one. This one on harvesting rainwater when your roof is asphalt. Jeff Lawton. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And I have a question here from the Survival Podcast about rainwater collection. And... Um, uh, we have a question here saying that uh, how, uh, how can we safely use rainwater collected off an asphalt shingle roof? Um, we have a, um, this is a ranch in Texas, or ranch-style house in Texas. Where um, they've been harvesting less than half the water and use it for pressure washing and other miscellaneous uses. There's a black spooge and sand from shingles accumulates in the reservoir. Um, the back half of the house has even more area, but they're reluctant to collect the water for f uh, fish tank or chickens or gardening. Um, they also have metal roofs that they harvest in other tanks for cattle, um, and it's much cleaner. Well, they're off-grid and only have a gen set to back up so far. Well, look, we drink the tank water. Uh, we, we drink the water off metal roofs. Um, clean your roof, clean your gutters, put a f little first flush on there. They're easy enough to make and put it in a tank. That's all we do here. We drink all. I don't even have first flush on my house where I am. Um, we've always done it. We reckon much safer than tan water, that's for sure. Um, so I wouldn't waste that. And then I'd put a reed bed on your grey water that comes out of the house. Don't bother with black water. Or maybe you've got a compost toilet. Black water is a little bit more complicated to deal with. Just you need larger reed beds. But your grey water coming out of your showers and your sinks, I just put it through a reed bed. You can look them up online and tank that water and you've got pretty good irrigation water. And, and if you put it through a reasonable reed bed, That'd be good for your cattle. Now, with your asphalt water, yeah, it's got petrochemical residue coming off, but all you do is you put it through a sand trap. Make, look it up online, make a nice sand trap, you know, put it, put it through a sand trap filter and then put it through a reed bed. And what comes out the end is going to be fine for, for, you know, your fish tank, your chickens and your gardening. There's no, no worries about that. You know, the biological cleaning systems of nature, which are swamps and bottom lands and, and, um, um, 
marshes and they clean things up with their their anaerobic roots so your reeds have a body above the um above the water and uh, roots underneath uh, when you put them through uh, two foot of gravel they don't roots don't go any deeper than two foot of gravel globally all reeds are only two foot but you you make your your reed bed two foot plus three inches of gravel so you don't see the water there's no exposed water it's underneath the the top three inches of gravel and then um uh, the water's transiting through the gravel and through all the all the reed roots, comes out the end all cleaned up. There's plenty of them online. Where I live here in Australia, it's illegal not to have a reed bed in the country on your grey water. Um, so um, you can look that up. Liz, Lismore, I live in the, in, in the Lismore Shire, uh, northern New South Wales, Australia. L-I-S-M-O-R-E. Look at their website. Uh, Lismore Council website, um, you've got all the reed beds on there. And this is first world country. It's very much like America in many ways. Um, so, um, and I've made them on projects overseas. No problem. I've made them all over the place. And uh, they're not, not hard to make whatsoever. The, the longer you reed bed, the cleaner the water. You clean up any, any pollutants in water. And I mean any pollutants in water if you have enough biological cleaning systems. Um, you have fantastic systems in America. Some of the first work that was done, John Todd Living Machines in Vermont. Um, yeah, they've done work all over the world. I've worked with their experts. Um, yeah, and it's not high tech. It's not really that high tech. You look up the stats. Um, all good stuff. Glad to be able to help you. So here's what I always think when this question comes up. If you're drinking it or something, I, I understand. But when it comes to like using it as irrigation water. So right now you have this house and it's going to rain. And where does the water go now? For most people, it goes on the ground. And do bad, terrible things happen all around your house? No. When we are building permaculture earthworks systems and we're swaling and we are around structures, if that roof is metal, asphalt, made up of Djiboutiville, whatever the hell that is, like it doesn't matter what it is. As soon as we see hard catchment, we always design swale systems to harvest that catchment. So while I don't have any bad feelings about Jeff saying use a sand filter in a reed bed to make it totally clean if we're going to use it to feed animals and stuff. I'm not that concerned about using it as irrigation water at all right from the get-go because those same natural systems exist in our soil as exist in a reed bed. So I would not hesitate to use asphalt roof water with a good first flush as irrigation water. Feeding it to livestock as drinking water, I would probably take that extra step of at least the sand filtration. And I, I don't know that you really need to do the reed bed, but it wouldn't hurt anything. And it's a you know it's another. What you then really have is water that I wouldn't hesitate to dump through a Berkey and drink. Right, and I probably would drink it through a Berkey with just the sand trap. And the sand trap is as much to take the solid particulates out as, as anything else. So anyway, I just thought I would throw that in there. Just you know, when you're worried about using roof water, ask yourself where your roof water goes now, and then you start to see things. I think a little bit differently. Uh, let's take another one. This one uh, on oil for your vehicles with Derek Bonpietro. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got two questions up on today's Friday show. First question's from Mike. 
Will it cause a problem if I mix brands and types of motor oil in my car? Details. When I change the oil in my car, I usually have a little under a quart left. I always buy the same grade, 5W20, but often different brands or types, such as full synthetic, partial, etc. Can I mix the leftovers of brand type, or will it be better to keep them until I have enough to complete the oil change? All right. It depends. So, we've got an older vehicle, 80s or 90s, you know, basic push rod, V8, V6, or a basic overhead cam engine, like a four, six cylinder, you'd find in maybe a front wheel drive car. Probably isn't going to care as much, because those are typically like a 5W30 or 10W30 oil, and they were just plain Jane dinosaur oil. So nothing really fancy. As you move into the late 90s to the 2000s, engines started to get very tight on their tolerances, requiring like 020 oil, super thin stuff, and they required synthetic only, because they have lots of oil-controlled valves for things like such as variable valve timing, variable valve lift, etc. So, those types of vehicles, we want to pay very close attention to the oil specified in the owner's manual and do not go outside of that recommendation. So that's a real high-level view of all of this as is going on. Now, can you mix synthetic and regular old dinosaur oil? Absolutely. But you kind of break it down to the, the lowest grade of oil. So, if we're mixing synthetic with regular, consider it kind of regular oil at that point. So if the vehicle calls for synthetic, you really don't want to put the regular oil in with that mix because now you've you've gone outside of the recommendation. So you can mix them. It really depends on what it's going in. I mean, like if we're talking a push mower or something, whatever. Car, nah, I don't know about that. Now, let's talk about the different types of grades of oil. If you look on the back, there's going to be a circular uh, crest, and it's going to have a rating inside of that crest. And so it's going to begin with an S because it's a spark ignition engine. And then the following letter is going to tell you uh, where the grade of that oil is. The most current grade is SP. And so this is for 2020 vehicles. And I'm just looking at the chart right now. Protection against low speed pre-ignition, timing chain wear protection, improved high temperature deposit protection for pistons and turbochargers and blah, blah, blah. You don't want to use anything lower than the SP grade in a 2020 and newer vehicle. Now, as you go down the chart, you've got SN, which is for 2020 and older. SM is for 2010 and older. And it just keeps going down. And so you wouldn't want to put a lower grade or an older grade, as I should say, oil with a newer one and expect it to do its job properly. That's the kind of thing we want to be looking for. And yeah, you can mix them. But if we're talking about a car, you probably want to stick with the same brand, type, viscosity, grade, etc. It's, it gets into a really good habit to buy the oil from the same place. So, for example, like, I don't know, like you like Pennzoil or something, just buy it at Walmart. Or if you're like a Napa parts guy, buy Napa oil. Now, there's a good chance that a lot of those oils are going to be the same, but it wouldn't hurt to keep shopping at the same place. So that way you know you're going to get the same exact stuff no matter what. All right, next question up is from Nick in Mongolia. Are there circumstances where it's reasonable to use winter tires all year round? Details. We have a 2010 Lexus RX350 whose summer tires are near the end of their useful life. Instead of buying a new set of summer tires next year, my brother-in-law recommends we just use our relatively new winter tires all summer next year, given we don't drive as much, maybe 3,000 miles a year. And in our country, the average speeds are on the low end, with the max speed being 50 miles an hour and seldom worth going over 60. All the tire professionals, quote-unquote, on the web seem to have say a lot against... The idea of using them year-round, but seems to me that the greater wear on the winter tires in the summer wouldn't seem to be that much of an issue with these lower-use, lower-speed circumstances. I don't mean to slam the tire guys, but we got to admit they have a heavy incentive to sell more tires. So is there anything we're missing? We're not in a financial pinch or anything, but all things being equal, I would rather just keep the money in our savings. Thanks for your help. Nick in Mongolia. 
All right, Nick. Let's get that Lexus dialed right in. Let's talk about the differences between summer and winter tires. And typically, most people are going to get an all-season tire, which is going to be winter-rated. It's going to have the little snowflake on it, so technically you can drive when the roads are closed down due to bad snow. But realistically, they lack in winter traction. They're they're an all-year tire, but... You know, you're probably going to get better performance in the summer than the winter without going to a dedicated snow tire. They're going to give you really good fuel economy, good traction in dry and wet weather, and lots of mileage on the actual tire itself. Winter tires, super soft. They have lots of siping, which are little tiny slits in the tread themselves. So if you run your thumb across it, you can actually see the tread peeling back. And all those little cuts give you lots of great traction in the winter and the snow and ice. They also are made from a very soft compound, so obviously they're more pliable and they're going to give you better traction in slippery conditions. The other thing winter tires are going to have potentially are picks. So you're going to have little studs inside of those tires, and obviously that's going to give you tremendous amounts of traction over a standard tire in the winter on the ice. In the United States, you can't run those in the summertime. It's illegal. Pretty sure in Mongolia, anything goes. So you might be able to get away with that, but they're super noisy. You're driving down the road, it sounds like a tank. I'd say if they're Winter tires with the studs, kill that idea. Now, as long as they're not studded and they're just a plain winter tire, you can drive them in the summertime. The problem you're going to have with them is they're going to wear out very fast compared to driving them in the winter or compared to running an all-season tire. They're going to be fairly noisy. The handling of the vehicle is going to be, I wouldn't say compromised, but a little less than desirable. You know, if you're driving down the road and the wiggle the wheel back, the vehicle is going to tend to float a lot more just because the tires are relatively softer than a, a normal all-season tire. So those are really the downsides along with the decrease in fuel economy. So my personal recommendation for the best performance of the vehicle, if you're in snow, you should probably have some summer or all-seasons for the other three seasons and then have a dedicated set of winter tires. It comes with additional expense. You got two sets of tires, two sets of wheels. You got an extra set of wheels that need to be balanced. So you've got some increased maintenance, not to mention most people are going to pay to have them swapped out every season or they're going to buy an extra set of rims. Regardless, if you can handle the expense, I'd say get tires for each of those two seasons. If you don't want to go that route, I'd probably spend the money on a really good all-season tire. One that's got a good snow rating and good mileage. I think it's a, there's plenty of tires on the market that are a good compromise, and you don't really have to sacrifice in either one of them without having to get a dedicated snow tire. I've had a couple of Subarus in the past with regular all-season tires in the wintertime up here in New England. I drove those things like they were in a rally. No problem whatsoever. And the Lexus is all-wheel drive. I think you're going to have the same performance in the winter as well. As far as the Mongolian standard, I've never been there, but I have been to Ecuador. And I tell you, their vehicle maintenance is on a different level completely than in the United States. Those guys run those tires down right to the cord. I was on a bus going up through the mountains to go on a hiking trip. And I could hear the thing squealing through the turns, going up all the switchbacks through the mountain. And I was kind of cringing. And when I got off the bus, those tires were smooth as glass. So I'd say if they can get away with it, you can probably get away with anything in Mongolia. There's my recommendations for you. hope that works out for you, Nick. Check out AffordableDCGenerators.com for the affordable DC power supply solution. If you've got a battery-based inverter system, whether it's on a boat, an RV, your truck, your trailer, whatever it is, check out the affordable DC generator. Get those batteries charged. Thanks for the questions, guys. Take care. Good stuff there. So next, uh, Derek Pompietro um, put together this segment on his own. Nobody really asked. He just thought this would be a good time of year to talk about it. You know, we're heading up toward the holiday season. There's going to be shipping delays this year. They're already saying that. 
knocking stuff out in advance is a good idea. And I'll, I'm going to tell you some of this stuff's getting added to my personal stuff anyway. Uh, probably every one of these items will be coming to the T-SPAS catalog really soon. This is a great segment. Most of this stuff, all this stuff is around 50 bucks or less, but most of it's under 20 And these are really great, solid, uh, small gift recommendations and personal kit recommendations. Six great tools under 50 bucks from Derek Bonpietro. Uh, sorry, not from uh, Tim Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Tim the Toolman Cook back here from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada. Coming back to you from AllSeasonsMain.com where we define what it means to be a successful entrepreneur as a modern handyman where we share tips and tricks, successes and failures on our road to financial freedom. So I'm back this week with another segment for the Expert Council. This week I thought I'd share with you guys a little different segment. Since I'm recording this sitting here watching the snow come down, it's reminded me that Christmas is a lot closer than we care to admit. And with seemingly every second news story this week about a massive holiday shipping delays, I thought it'd be helpful to share with you guys five items for the handyman or woman in your life that will not disappoint for under 50 bucks. I'll send Jack all the links to each product so you can pick them up at T-SPAS and get your shopping done early. And also, they're all items I have used, so they will all come with the Tim the Toolman seal of approval. So first, I'd like to start with the obvious, and that's a DeWalt product. If you've listened to any of my segments before, you know how much I love my impact drivers, and my DeWalt in particular. One of the biggest drawbacks of the impact driver is that it takes the hex end drill bits, or impact bits which most traditional drill bits aren't shaped like. Well, recently I picked up a 10-pack of DeWalt impact-ready drill bits for just under 20 bucks, and it's changed my life. Just a little bit. Instead of needing to keep a drill around to drill pilot holes in metal, wood, and concrete, I just use the hex drill bits in my impact tool bag, and now I only need to carry one tool with me. It's great. If you have hundreds of holes to drill, then use a traditional drill. But for almost all the work around the house that a typical handyman would need, or even a full-time handyman would need, this is a perfect gift. Second, sometimes I find Christmas is a time to buy things you might not splurge on otherwise. No one has ever said, man, I wish my tape measure was shorter, or man, I wish that tape measure was narrower so it would fold over exactly when I need it just so it won't work right. I use the 30-foot Stanley Fat Max tape measure every single day. And what I love about it is it's 5 feet longer than the standard 25-footer. So when you get out to about 20 feet on a 25-footer, you start feeling that resistance, and you know you're shrinking the life of the, the uh, spring that comes with it. But with the 30, it just seems to be enough. This tape is a little bit heavy and a little bit bulky, so it's harder, but not impossible to misplace. Just ask me. It has a 14-foot standout, which is perfect for working for, by yourself, which I do a lot, and I know a lot of people do. It's built like a tank. You can drop it from high heights and not worry about it. And the first few inches of the tape measure have an extra plastic coating on it, which protect it for all those little tiny measurements you do. And for $35 bucks on Amazon, it's definitely worth it. I keep one in both trucks because I tend to lose them more often than uh, a Bic pen or a Bic lighter. So the third item, it's a bit cheaper, but every bit is good. Uh, carpenter's pencils are another one of those things that I lose at least four times a day. So why not buy a pack of 10 Carpenter's pencils? And that's, that's okay, but the real game changer that comes with it is the sharpener. If anyone's ever tried to sharpen a carpenter's pencil with a knife, you know you're taking your life into your own hands. You know, either you take too much off or not enough, 
or you take all the wood off and then you just break the lead and it's impossible to get a really nice sharp edge. Well, this pack comes with a special pencil sharpener specifically for flat carpenter's pencils and it works perfect every time. 12 pencils with a perfect built sharpener for under 12 bucks. It's a steal and it's a really good product. I know it's carpenter's pencils, but who doesn't love having pencils around? So for anyone who uses a box cutter or a utility knife that takes the traditional style two-sided razor blades, and especially if you cut a lot of cardboard boxes, you know how quickly those blades can lose their edge. Well, a while back, I tried the new DeWalt carbide blades that supposedly last 10 times longer than a normal steel blade. I don't know about 10 times longer, but they certainly last way longer, which means I don't have to flip them over or switch them out very often. They stay razor sharp after cutting a bunch of cardboard, and I used a single one side of a single blade while cutting the vinyl carpet for an entire room on a cement floor. So that says something. They're certainly worth taking a look at for just over a buck a blade. They're $12 for a 10-pack on Amazon, and I don't know any handyman who wouldn't want to have those in their stocking. And speaking of utility knives, I have a great recommendation for those as well. And before anyone says it, no, this isn't a DeWalt. I've tried a few brands, and the one that I use the most, it, because it's just well-built, is the Milwaukee Fastback Press and Flip Utility Knife. Say that ten times fast. The biggest reason I use this one is because there's not a single piece of plastic on it. It's made out of rugged aluminum, but it's light enough you think it's made out of plastic. It has a great spring-loaded release button that allows you to open it with one hand, and a wonderful spring-loaded release button for removing and reinserting the blade, which locks it into place. It just really works. I've used this knife for about a year now, and it works every time I need it. I've crawled under trailers with it. I've got it full of dirt. I've got plumbing glue all over it, and it just keeps working. The knife by itself is 15 bucks on Amazon, but comes on sale cheaper a lot more often than that. So since I got through this list so quickly, I'm going to throw in one bonus item. And this is probably the single item I use the most. It's a bit of a cheat, too, because... To keep it under 50 bucks, you have to buy it on sale. But that's my uh, 3M WorkTunes Bluetooth headset. I use that all the time. It lets me listen to podcasts and audiobooks at a comfortable volume, even when I'm around really loud, loud items. So anyway, guys, that's it for me. If you want to know more about my opinions on tools, go on over to my YouTube channel at allseasonsmain.com, where I have a tool time gear review every single Wednesday. One of them this month is a showdown between a DeWalt utility knife and the Milwaukee I just recommended. And I bet you can figure out which one won on this one. So keep the questions coming, guys. Send them to Jack for me. I always love answering them. And if you like this segment, I could probably be persuaded to do another uh, tool recommendation Christmas list because, well, you know, I really hate talking about tools. Anyway, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. And I do have all of those recommendations in today's show notes. All you got to do is go by the website. If you're listening to it in the future, so we're speaking to you from the past, you can just use the search bar at the top of the site and search for 2769-2769 today's episode. That brings me to my subject today. I, I want to talk a little bit about cryptocurrency. It's not going to be a long segment. I just want to kind of, you know, I, I said at the beginning of the show that you, you cannot cure willful ignorance, but you can cure ignorance. If a person is remotely open <clears throat> to learning something new, um, and they'll they'll look at something with any level of reasonable uh, discernment, they can learn, 
And I think that cryptocurrency is something that you need to learn about. And 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 I, I want to like I want to kill the first and primary objection. Well, you know, it could crash. So don't go put twenty thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars in it. I'm not saying to do that. Most people I know that talk about this are not saying to do that. And that's why I want to, I want to talk about the, the fact that I, I recommend it because it works. So if I have 500 bucks worth of cryptocurrency and it crashes, whatever that means to you, I'm not really that worried about it. You know, the price of silver has crashed in the past. It, it absolutely has, and it will again. Right, it, it absolutely will. There's no way around that. You will see any commodity will go through cycles where it, it goes up and down. So the person is always saying that usually runs the next thing is I put all my money in precious metals. Well, that's stupid. Don't put all your money in anything. And it is much more precious metals have a place, but they are a terrible system of currency. Because let's say you want something for me and you live in Idaho. You're gonna, I mean, I get silver in the mail for MSB, and I honor it, and I like it, and I do it, and it makes me happy when I get it. Don't get me wrong, but it costs you more money than it makes sense to to mail me silver in the mail. And it's slow and tedious, and you could pay with Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash or Ethereum or whatever you want in seconds, and it works. And that's the big thing is it works. But we are... We are going into a place, because it, let's do the next objection. But if they shut the internet off, if they shut the internet off, you are screwed anyway. I'm not even going to get into the technical mumbo-jumbo of how it doesn't make your Bitcoin go away, but it doesn't. Right? If you have no internet communications in the world for whatever reason, you have bigger problems than how much money you think you have in Bitcoin. This is, this is, this is like worrying about, you know, whether or not you're going to be able to feed your goldfish when there's a trucker strike and you didn't store any food for yourself. It, it's such a minor concern in the totality of what that means. right? You shut off the... This is like worrying that they're going to intentionally shut off the power grid, which would probably be the only way that if the power grid did go down, then you couldn't get on the Internet. Now, if you have all your money in cryptocurrency and that goes out, you, you have a problem. But if you have all your money in cryptocurrency, I think you already had a problem to begin with, which was a bad decision. So th these things are not relevant to the discussion at all. But you are going to see not a pullback of technology, but a continuous ongoing expansion of technology. Because all of the things that the people you're worried about, and you should be, want to do are contingent upon the continuous expansion of technology. So it is not un impossible that you could see a, a, a technology dark age, I guess, of some sort or some duration. But the preponderance of, of probability is you can bet that other than short-term disruptions, there will be an Internet. Which is how all of this shit happens. Like, like that's like, well, then I hope you don't use a banking system because that's how money moves from one part place to another in the bank through this method of communication, right? So, like, that's just not a thing. But what's going on in the world today is a movement toward a cashless society with a centralized currency system like we have now. But when you go to cashless. The fact that you're using FedCoin and somebody's using EuroCoin will become almost meaningless because the, the ultimate central authority is the banking system that is global, and hence you now have a true cashless 
global currency that can be immediately switched from dollars to euros to Canadian dollars to whatever else it needs to be at will and tracked 100%. And if you talk about being able to be shut out of something, that is the system you can and may be shut out of with no right to privacy at all for anything from an illicit activity to something as benign as you bought your wife some perfume for Christmas. There, it will be impossible using this currency, which is coming, which will eventually replace all cash without the ability of the government and the banks to know exactly what you did and exactly when you did it. And cryptocurrency makes that go away. The other thing is imagine this world where there is no cash. How do you defend your wealth from a system that can create it and take it away at will? How do you defend your holdings? You know, right now the banks, you know, they can go into the bank. They can take your money. They can do things to do that. But it's, it's not like they can just do it. It actually requires some legal recourse. It actually requires some things. This new currency system, they'll be able to, like some guy sitting in D.C. will just be able to go, Bill doesn't need his money anymore. And it'll happen. Well, I'll fight back, okay? You have no money for a lawyer now. And this happens already. This happens already. One of my dear friends out of this audience, myself and several other members of the audience several years ago, all pitched in, about 500 bucks a piece to bail him out of a hole he was in because the state of Massachusetts took all the money out of his bank account because they said he owed money in taxes. And they took far in excess of what he actually owed. And his recourse was, good luck. Now imagine you have some portion of your wealth in cryptocurrency. You can charge up a Visa debit card and go out and spend it as though it were cash. You can spend it directly with anybody who will take it. But there's one thing that cannot happen. No one can take it away from you. Not your keys, not your coins. That's a thing. And, and, and again, some of you have resistance. The biggest reason most of you have resistance to this is you cannot understand how it could work. How could somebody just program a bunch of shit into a computer and make a private currency that works? Okay, this is like the person who doubts the rocket works. I can't take you any further than to go down to Cape Canaveral and say, see the rocket, feel the vibration in the ground, watch the rocket go up in the air. Once the rocket gets out of sight, this is a video feed from the rocket. There's the capsule separating. There's our crew getting on board the space station. Here's a telescope. You can actually look up and see the space station at night. There it is, right there, above your head. There it is. The person who is... The no space program conspiracy theorist, that will not convince them. When it comes to cryptocurrency, we have a 15-plus year track record of doom and gloom forecast. It will all go away. The government will shut it down. It's going to go broke. They're going to hack it. 15 years of people using this currency. Never mind the ones that got rich. Forget it. Pretend it never happened. Pretend that Bitcoin came out. And when Bitcoin came out, they said, it's worth a dollar, it'll always be worth a dollar, and over 15 years it was still worth a dollar. My recommendation would be the same. So you have a form of currency that even if this is public, right, so the pub, Bitcoin can have a lot of anon, an, 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 
anonymous nature to it. I can't say anonymity right now for some reason, right? It can, but it, in the end, you can figure out Bitcoin, where it went and who it came from. You can know, right? You can know that I have, let's say, a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. Do you know what you can do to get it? Nothing. You can't get it. You could even say, we know that it's in this address. And we know this address is associated with Jack. Okay? Go ahead. Take it. Give us the keys. No. You will give us the keys. No. I don't remember what they are. I forgot. I had them written down on a piece of paper, and then I lost the piece of paper, and I can't get to them. I don't know where they are. I, if you can get it out, God bless you. Go ahead. And they say, well, someday they can look and say, look, money moved out of there. Uh, somebody's stealing it from me. Would you please go catch them for me? I mean, think about this. There are technological attacks like where they, they find an exploit in an old operating system and they lock up a whole a company's computers because they were stupid and didn't upgrade their computers. And they say, pay us in Bitcoin. And the company gets to a point where they're like, boy, it's a risk that they won't turn it back on, but shit, and they pay them. And, you know, $200,000 worth of Bitcoin go into this address. Everybody knows what address it is because it was public that they said send it here. It goes there. And it starts turning into other currencies and it just and they never get that person. I'm not saying to do shit like that. I'm saying if they can't get that person, how are they going to take it away from you? So you have a form of wealth that can be public or anonymous depending on what form you keep it in and how you behave with it that cannot be taken from you that has at least a 15-year track record of quote-unquote working and is, in my opinion, the only, let me say it one more time, the only option you have to be able to conduct commerce with people that you're not standing right next to to hand them something like a silver coin or a gold doubloon or whatever you're going to do in the future that will be something that cannot be seized. Now, you really should let that think sink in. And I, I do agree that they can make people's life miserable. They can throw you in jail for contempt of court or whatever, which is why it's important to me that I bring you technologies that are on the cutting edge like R, A-R-R-R, from Pirate Chain, that I brought you on Wednesday because it's literally invisible. When you have a public block explorer that's all zeros, good luck. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have any of this stuff. How does this work? What do you think? I don't know. Duh. Right, and I know that the people are playing the what if. Well, what if they do this? What if they, if if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. You can always come up with a what if. There is no perfect solution, but I am an advocate of cryptocurrency because it is is the leading way to remain free in a society that is increasingly making 1984 look like the good old days. George Orwell could never have conceived of the technocracy, the, the oligarch technocracy and dictatorship by fiat and control of the money that we are heading into right now. This makes 1984 look like a cakewalk. I've tried to explain this for years. Totalitarianism of the future does not look like the video version, the movie version of 1984, where everything's dark and dank, and everybody's sitting in a sweatshop doing work for the great leader, and everything's skanky and danky, and even the, the elites, like their places are not that nice looking. No, it's shiny, it's sparkly, because it's fascism. The future of technocracy is technological 
fascism, and it looks shiny even if it's miserable. The boot on your face has sequins on it. And the only way I know to keep options available is the ability to have a way to conduct commerce that is invisible to other people who you don't want to know about it and is a human being. I believe that is an inherent human right that you have. That inherently, if you and I want to exchange value with each other, it is nobody's fucking business. The end, infinity, period. Nobody's fucking business. And I use that word because it is called for there because that's how I really, really feel. It's no one's business. And anybody who thinks otherwise is part of the problem. What if you're selling children? That is a problem in of itself. That is not, that is not about the right to privacy. The fact that something can be abused is not a justification to eliminate it. That would be like saying, well, you know, I know most of you used guns right, but what if somebody takes a gun and shoots somebody in the face with it? Then we deal with that thing when somebody shoots somebody in the face with it. We identify that action as the problem, not because it was a gun. Because I shoot you in the face with a gun, I hit you in the face with a sledgehammer, I run over you with my car. Any of those methods have taken your life. My right for me and you to exchange value without interference or knowledge of other parties is an inherent human right, the end. So when you bring me away that we can do that with 100% anonymous nature to it, right? I can't say that today, right? I don't know why I can't. When you bring me that, when you bring me that, I will replace cryptocurrency with that because cryptocurrency is the closest thing to that we have right now. Putting gold in a safe in the concrete floor of your home is not a terrible idea. Gold especially is a small amount, has a huge amount of value. But it's actually going to be easier to regulate and control than cryptocurrency. Because you have to physically possess it. I can come to your house and I can search for your gold. What are you going to search for? Numbers? for crypto? You can find numbers that are low-tech, encrypted, that you can try to use that don't work, and the only way that you can make them work is I know how to do it, and I'm not going to tell you. And those numbers don't necessarily mean what you think they mean. You have to prove that they are a thing that they're not. I could have a whole bunch of numbers around in some sort of hard copy that all don't mean anything. They might also be like a record of my, my diet. And somewhere in the middle of that could actually be the keys that you need to open the lock that you don't know where it is. Do that with gold and silver. Transfer $5,000 worth of value to me in gold, anonymously, from Europe, right now, go. See? You see how that works? This is why. I don't give a shit if every cryptocurrency right now locks its price in against U.S. dollar and never moves again, up or down. I don't care if they all go in half. Nothing I've said changes. And again, I'm back to... You either believe that your right to conduct business with another party privately is an inherent human right, or you don't. And if you don't, you've wasted 15 minutes listening to this. If you do, I'm telling you, the best option is crypto. And even though it's, a, you know, like you can see it, like to get started to learn, go to Coinbase, fill out a form, set up your bank account, a link, and then 
buy a couple hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin, send it to a wallet, learn how it works, convert it to some other things, learn how it works. Get a Jax wallet, Jax, J-A-X-X dot I-O, download it, or, but I don't like that, I, I don't care, get a wallet. It's just one I recommend. Start using it. Do something of value and earn cryptocurrency from somebody else and then spend it back. It will. The thing that it will do is unlock your brain from this belief, this grand illusion that only the magical Federal Reserve can make money and understand this final thing about the banking system. The government does not own the Federal Reserve. I know that most of you are aware at least the Federal Reserve is not a government organization. right? But the Federal Reserve as a thing, doesn't own the banks. The banks own the Federal Reserve. One more time so you really understand why you live in a fascist economy. The banks own the Federal Reserve, full stop. They own your money. They don't just control your money. They own your money. The dollar in your bank account is literally owned by the banks who issued it through the Federal Reserve and fractional banking system. They own your money. And when they digitize it, the full reality of that will become abundantly clear very, very, very quickly. And at that point, it will be, if you wait till then to get, figure out how cryptocurrency works, you're going to be like the person that buys the, you know, 5,000 survival seed vault hermostatically sealed in a piece of PVC pipe and sits it on the shelf and plants a garden when the crisis comes. And even if you do everything right, you're waiting a long time before you get any food and you won't do everything right. I'm not going to talk about crypto for a while now. But going into next week where I won't be here with new content for you, I wanted to leave you with that this week. With that, I do want to let you know next week we're going to be having some really cool different shows coming. I've got some stuff I'm pulling out of videos like I did yesterday from the past. I've got some rewinds. I've got some – actually, Monday's show will be new content. I'm going to do that right away as soon as I finish this show. I'll do two in a row today. It's going to be on running an event, and I think that will be fun, a fun show. I'm going to try to make next week kind of fun and entertaining and light. Uh, I will be with 80 people on my property, so I will not be able to get much of anything done for you guys. So i got to get all this crap done this weekend. That gives me Monday and Tuesday next week to really be getting the final things done before people start showing up around 2 o'clock on Wednesday. And so I'm going to be doing that for you. Let's wrap things up, though, with a, uh item of the day on TSPAZ, T-S-P-A-Z.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. If you go there when you do your online shopping, no matter what you buy, you'll be able to help us out as long as you just start there. And, hey, we talked about cryptocurrency. There's now a link there. You guys can check out. If anybody's using this link, let me know if you buy anything through it because I don't know how it's going to work out for me. I have no doubt how it's going to work out for you. But you can spend cryptocurrency with companies like, uh, uh, like what the hell's the name of that company now? Um, Wayfair and Overstock and stuff like that. And this just basically is a site that lets you search for everything that's available. So if you're wondering where you can spend cryptocurrency, pretty much anywhere at this point. And I think that is uh, another door that opens. But most of the stuff, there are items that I've reviewed on Amazon. Today's item of the day is uh, Frontier Organics Lemon Pepper. I buy it by the pound because, you know, a pound and you're good for uh, about two years. I break it up into small jars and I dry can it. But you don't have to do that. You can just throw it into, uh, like, small ball jars and, and seal it up and you're good. Uh, it lasts just perfectly that way. But what's really cool in today's, episode, or today's item of the day is the recipe in there. I want you to know that it took almost two years for me to perfect this chicken recipe. 
And lemon pepper is kind of a joke. Lemon pepper chicken, because that's like Deborah on Raymond. Everyone's Raymond. Like, it's the only thing she could make. Like, it's really easy. Anybody can do it. You put lemon pepper on chicken and cook it. No, no. This started out, I was trying to clone the chicken that they have at Panera Bread. In, they don't even make it anymore. They used to make a bowl, uh, a bowl dish that was really great in the winter with this chicken on it that was like sliced up and put on top of the, the bowl, like the soup bowl. And it was so delicious. I'm like, I want to replicate that. I didn't just replicate it. I made it better. And you can use this a variety of ways, but it's, it's basically a marinade, some marinade end of seasoning in one. And I tell you everything about how to do it. And if you learn the procedure of this, you can do a lot otherwise, much better with your cooking. And it's also a great item. And you always help us out if you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings me to my song of the day today as we wrap up Waylon Jennings' week. And uh, this song was actually mentioned a few times in comments here and there when people found out we were doing Waylon Jennings' week. And a lot of people even said, I, I, I am almost embarrassed to admit that this is my favorite Waylon Jennings song. I bet you a lot of you know what it is right now. Just good old boys, yep. The theme song from the Dukes of Hazard. Now let me tell you something about this song. The reason I love it is twofold. One, I think if the Dukes of Hazard, God forbid, had never existed, I believe that if this song had been given radio play in the 1980s when it came out, it would have still been a number one hit. It's just a good song. On the other hand, if, like me, you're around 50 years of age, odds are that you remember hearing that amazingly awesome narration about how the boy's going to get out of this one and stuff like that. You remember all those little cliffhangers when you was a kid, sitting there with the General Lee up in the air about to go over a jump. And you knew when they came back, old Roscoe P. Coltrane was going to nose-end his jump and end up off the road. But you still were excited, and you didn't have a DVR to hit a button. See, to me, the reason this song is so awesome is it's wailing. That makes it awesome. It's a good song. That makes it awesome. We all know people like this, and we all probably in this audience aspire to be a little bit like this, right? And it harkens back to a time when we didn't get all our panties in a wad because, gee, there's a, there's a freaking flag we don't like on a car on a TV show. And it's much bigger than that. It's the entire mindset that we had in the 1980s that even when we disagreed, in the end, we just went on with our damn lives and left everybody alone. This song is all of that to me and more. So don't be embarrassed if this is your favorite Will and Jennings song. It's not mine. As I told you earlier this week, The Rose is. This is my second. And it's a great song to go out with on a Friday. With that, been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Just a good old boy Never meaning no harm Beats all you never saw Been in trouble with the law Since the day they was born Raising the curve, yeah. in the hills. Someday the mountain might get them, but the law never will. Making their way, the only way they know how. That's just a little bit more than the law will allow.
just a little bit more than the law will allow. I'm a good old boy. You know my mama loved me. But you don't understand. They keep a show in my hands and not my face on 